0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11 is our text this morning as we're working our way through this New Testament letter, James, <clears throat> as you're finding that, let me mention, as we often do, that if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of the ones that you can find in the, the rack in front of you. You can keep that as our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. But for all of us, I think it'd be wonderful. It'd just be a, uh, just good for our souls to have our, our Bibles open in front of us, looking at this text, becoming familiar with, with where verses are in the Bible one of the sweetest sounds in the world is hearing pages of the Bible flipping in a congregation like this. It's encouraging to hear. As you're finding James, <clears throat> let me just say, praise God for the, uh, the gift that God has given this congregation to be in Columbus, Georgia, right next to Fort Benning, and to be able to serve so many people that are connected to our army and and we've got some Marines and Navy and Air Force guys here as well. And on this Veterans Day weekend, I'm just very thankful for the veterans and the active duty soldiers that are part of our congregation. And on this national holiday weekend, we, we thank you. We're grateful for you. And in just a moment, I'm gonna pray for God's grace to you as you serve us as a nation so faithfully. And we wanna serve you as a church and we thank you that God in his kindness has put us here in this strategic place and and I also praise God I I think about this often Um, the Lord uh, we're connected to several networks and mission sending organizations and unwittingly we're not unwittingly for us but unwittingly for our government the United States Department of Defense is unwittingly a mission sending organization they are paying to send believers in Jesus all throughout the world into different army bases and posts across our nation. So thank you, Uncle Sam, for funding the mission of God, and praise God for Christians in the military. Well, let's look at this text here in just a moment, but first let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this beautiful fall day, for your kindness to us as a church in so many ways. For for Columbus, Georgia, for the churches in our city. Thank you for the other Bible-believing churches in our town. Lord, we pray that their number would increase and we pray that their influence would increase. I pray for my brother pastors that are preaching the gospel this morning that you would make it fruitful, that you would encourage and edify the saints and call the lost to yourself. Lord, the hope of Columbus is the good news of Jesus and the life of the local church is where you have... You have primarily caused that to be heralded. So we pray for that, the ministry of other churches in this church. We, we thank you for, for those in our congregation that serve us in our nation's military. Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for the ways that they put themselves in harm's way. For those in our church even now that are deployed, that are in difficult and dangerous places, Lord, bless them, encourage them, protect them, bring them home safely. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given us. What a gift you've given us. That you have written down with perfection through humble servants through the centuries your word so that we might know you. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Humble us this morning, Lord. The text this morning is clear, but it's humbling. And I pray that we wouldn't read ourselves out of the text by thinking it applies to other people. Lord, make your people more like Jesus as a result of our time together. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, Lord, draw them to faith in Jesus. May we see how perishing and passing this world is. And may you, may you direct our hearts and our affections to the good news of your son, Jesus, again this morning as you do every week when we gather. And use us, Lord, use us for that end And use this time and your word to that end for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read. I reached for my head and the glasses weren't there and I had a moment of panic. Struggling this morning, not only with my eyesight, but um, I am on the verge of a cough and a sneeze. And I admit it's in my head because when I start sneezing, there's about seven or eight of them in rapid succession. So um, I'm going to... Humbly confess that to you. Pray for me. Let me read, starting in verse 9, James 1. Remember, we've been working through this text. The context is, at least in the first half of the first chapter, is trials that James says that the Christian will inevitably face. And then the wisdom that God gives us as we face these trials. And then verses 9 through 11 is this, I think, what seems to be maybe kind of disconnected, but is not... I think it is one of the trials that Christians will face and it is how we handle worldly wealth regardless of where we are on that spectrum of whether we have or have not. So he says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, I think this text is really quite clear. And so I want to just work through these few verses here very quickly. And then I want us to settle and think about three truths for the Christian life from this, from this text. Clearly, in verses 9, then compared to verses 10 and 11... James is is contrasting the rich and the poor and, and in verse 9 he's he's exhorting the lowly brother contextually because we know he's going to talk about the rich here in a few verses what he means by the lowly brother is the brother who is is financially poor and in fact riches Poverty, wealth is a theme that James comes back to over and over. He hits it again in, in James chapter 2 and then again in James chapter 5. And it's one of the three or four themes that, that James is very concerned about. About Remember the overarching thing of, of James is that, that the faith that we have in God and in what God has done through Jesus would actually work itself out in our lives. And one of the ways, primarily, that James is concerned with this faith in Christ that would work itself out in our lives is how we handle riches and how our riches, our wealth, causes us to treat one another. And here in verse 9, he's saying to the lowly brother or the poor brother to boast in his exaltation. What does he mean by that? clearly he's talking about that there's coming a day when the lowly brother the person without much in this world will be exalted in jesus so they live this life where they seem to be humiliated in their earthly circumstances but there's coming a day so he's pointing the lowly brother beyond the circumstances of this life to the day when he or she will be with christ and will be with the Lord forever. And the exaltation that comes for the believer, for be, being joined together in faith in Christ. So let the lowly brother look beyond his current circumstance, is what James is saying. And boast and revel, as Chris read for us this morning in James chapter 9. This is the good type of boast that the Bible calls us to. Not to boast in ourselves, or in our wisdom, or in our riches, or in our circumstance. But boast in the fact that you are in christ in fact there's this amazing scene in the gospels where jesus sends his disciples out and he tells them to to just kind of start doing the works of the kingdom and they do they go and and you know they're casting out demons and they're healing the sick and they come back and they're like wow it worked and jesus says to them hey listen don't boast don't don't be excited Don't revel in the fact that that the lame walk and the blind see and the demons flee. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And so there's this continually pointing beyond the circumstance that James here is pointing the lowly brother and he's saying there's coming a day when, when it will all be settled and you will be in Christ and you will be risen with him forever and ever. And then he he turns his attention in contrast to the rich. In verse 10, he says, "In the rich, so he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich, verse 10, in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Just, it's here for a moment, then it's gone so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so what is he saying to the rich? He's saying that the rich, and again, in context, he's saying should boast in his humiliation. So the the poor person is to boast in his exaltation, the fact that it's not about what you have or don't have, but in what you will have in Christ. And the rich, conversely, is to boast in his humiliation. In other words, what the rich heart needs is to not trust in what he has, but how Christ, who is the richest of all, humbled himself and gave it all up so that he would save guilty sinners like us. And so if you're rich, you're more prone to boast in your stuff. And James is pointing the rich away from that. And he's saying, no, don't revel in what you have. Humble yourself like Christ, who's the greatest example of humility, and boast in your humility and Christ that you have him, and if you have him, you have all that there is to have. Because the stuff that you do have is like a flower that will sprout up, it will blossom, then it will wither away. It's like the sun that rises and scorches things, and they're here for a moment and gone the next day. I think that's clearly what James is telling us. It's a it's an exhortation to Christians who are both rich and poor to turn away from how they are prone to be frustrated in this life or to be proud in this life and to look to the future. The Bible is continually pointing us beyond this life to the next. That's what I think this text is saying. So then three applications, three truths that we can apply to our life. First, I think it's clear the Bible has a lot to say about this. Jesus has a lot to say about this. And James has a lot to say about this. It's this, that how we handle worldly wealth, whether we have a lot of it or whether we have a little bit of it, is a spiritual test. How we handle worldly wealth is a spiritual test. We live in a prosperous culture. I think probably the most prosperous culture in the history of civilization. And whether or not we realize it, We need to admit, whether or not we're we're cognizantly aware of it all the time, I think we can all admit that this has an effect on us. It has an effect on the way we view things and our need. The other day, i I, am kind of been thinking about maybe we need a new refrigerator. And so I've been sort of browsing every time I go to Lowe's or Home Depot for a refrigerator. And like most men, I just sort of swing by Lowe's and Home Depot three or four times a week, whether or not I need anything. You just kind of just it's just therapeutic to just walk through Lowe's and Home Depot. You know what I'm talking about, guys. Women, you do it for your places too. We do it at Lowe's and Home Depot. And there are these refrigerators, these new refri- now, if you have one of these. First of all, I don't know it, so I'm not coming after you, and I'm not saying anything about... I'm just saying, I just just acknowledge that there are refrigerators like this exist, and they have an impact on us. There are now refrigerators that have like a, a, a door, like a glass door where you can see into the, the top part. Because God forbid you... Ex, you, you, you you exert the energy to actually open it up to see whether or not you know you have enough milk. Right? Okay? But it gets even better. There are these refrigerators that have these glass doors that you can see through and they have hidden cameras in there that are connected to an app you can download on your phone So that when you are at the grocery store, should you be unfamiliar with the state of stockage of your refrigerator, you can, I'm not making this up, you can look in your refrigerator from your phone in Piggly Wiggly. Now, I realize that most people that have a refrigerator like that are probably not shopping at Piggly Wiggly, but you you know what I'm you know what I'm talking about. Friends, friends, that has an impact on you and us. We have refrigerators with apps that that allow us to look in them so that we can see whether or not we need more milk. How we handle the prosperity we have as a nation is, how we, how we handle the prosperity that we have as a people, as, as, as 21st century citizens of this locale is a spiritual test. Money, comfort, prosperity puts pressure on us. And don't read this text and say, oh, yeah, I know, I know a couple of rich people that are in this congregation, and I hope they're here today. <laughs> Friends, that, not, all of us, all of us are in the sights here of the Holy Spirit. Money puts pressure on us, comfort, Puts pressure on us. The lowly brother is tempted maybe to to, to be frustrated, to be jealous of, to be envious of, to be judgmental of the rich brother. Which is just as much of a spiritual trap as comfort in the things that he's envious of. And the rich brother is tempted to to be frustrated because maybe his app is down or 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 he he, you know, he has so much stuff and he just wants more friends. There's this subliminal, almost subconscious effect that 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 our possessions have on us and they put this pressure on us and the pressure goes beyond just whether or not we can pay the bills the pressure is it's like a it's like a spiritual force of wickedness that is behind our head pushing our head down into ourselves that's what's going on here and James By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for both the rich and the poor is pushing in the opposite direction, pushing our heads up so that we would see into the future, not merely into the present. Friends, it is not a sin to be rich or to be poor. But it is a sin. It is a spiritual trap to think only of this world. James is telling us to be aware of the effect that money has on our hearts, all of us. And how we handle worldly wealth, whether we have a lot of it or a little of it, is a spiritual test for every believer. I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will make application to our hearts and our situations. Truth number two that I think this text leads us to is that we are all prone to find our significance in perishing pursuits. We're all prone to find our significance in perishing pursuits. And again, I think this text uses money, which is certainly not insignificant, and there's lots that we need to think about practically in those regards, but this text uses money, but I don't think we get to the heart of this text if we just stop there on money or worldly wealth. Wealth that pushes us beyond something that consumes and threatens all of our hearts, which are the perishing pursuits. And we are all prone to find our significance, our comfort in perishing pursuits. Here, for the rich, clearly, it's in their accumulation of stuff. But what might it be for us? Now, I, I think we are particularly vulnerable to this in our, in our digital culture, in our digital age, because we're so aware of what everybody else has, or at least what they want us to know that they have. And I know that I mention this a lot, but probably it's because I'm so aware of it in my own heart. Listen to what, what John, the Apostle John, says in his first epistle, First John, at the, all the way at the end of the New Testament, First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Man, this is to all of us. Let's not read ourselves out of this text. Don't think of anybody else. Think of me. Think of yourself. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now John, along with the other Bible writers here, is not condemning stuff. He's not condemning riches. He's condemning this lustful desire where we (laughs) put all of our hope in those things and we find our significance in them. And I think we're particularly vulnerable to that in our culture because it's very easy to become comfortable. Listen to this story from the Gospels in Luke chapter 12. We, we read from it earlier. Robert read from Luke chapter 12. This chapter seems to have a lot to do about money and possessions and where our hope is. And let me read A story, a scene from before where we read earlier in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through through 21. The story of the rich fool. Jesus is teaching and someone just kind of yells out in the crowd, listen to this interchange in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I just want to note here, I think this is just, just when I read, especially scenes, interactions with Jesus and people in the, in the Gospels, I just want to kind of slow down and read slowly and try and put myself in that scene. And can you imagine Jesus is teaching? And I don't know who this guy is, but he has the audacity to say, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, solve this problem for me, Jesus. Figure this out. And I think, you know, that's indicative of how we come to Jesus Prove me right, is what I think is going on in verse 13. But he said to him, verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Which is ironic because clearly Jesus is the judge, but, but, but he's wanting to draw something out of this man. There's, 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 there's much mystery there. Verse 15, and he said to them, This is Jesus now. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? And again, friends, let's not read ourselves out of that story. We are all prone to this type of comfort in the things that we have or the whatever it may be that makes us feel like we can put it in cruise control and Jesus puts his finger on that and he says those things are perishing those things are those things are here for a moment and gone the next A question for us all what perishing pursuits are you per, particularly prone to put your hope and your trust in again take don't don't Push deeper into this text than just earthly wealth or how much money you have in your bank account. Push deeper into this and know that the lowly brother is, is maybe prone to put his significance in something else and the rich brother may be prone to put his significance in, in, in physical riches, but all of us are prone to, to, put, to find our significance in something that's here today and gone tomorrow. What is it for you? What is it for me? I'm very prone to find my significance in just how I feel the church is doing and whether or not it feels like things are going well and kind of on the uptick. And if they're not, it, it can really wreak havoc with my joy. And I think what's happening in my heart when that's the case is that maybe I'm not storing up you know, some earthly wealth and saying, oh, today I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. But there's this sense where I will find significance, find rest, find joy, find satisfaction in some temporal, emotional feeling of whether or not things are going well in my life. And I continually have to fight that. All of us have these, these different perishing pursuits that we must fight. What's yours? What's yours? I pray the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom to think about our own lives. And then thirdly, the third truth that I think this text points us to, which I think is the heart of this text, is that the gospel calls us all to be humbled with and to boast in Christ alone. The good news of the gospel, the good news of what God has done is it answers. It answers the need of the heart for both the lowly brother and the rich brother. It answers the need of the heart of every human heart for significance and right standing with God. The good news of the Gospel answers the restlessness of the human heart, both the rich and the poor. To the poor, James is saying, you will be exalted in Jesus. Get your eyes off of this world. To the rich, he says, don't put your trust in the things of this world. You will be humbled. So humble yourself with Christ. So both, from both angles, poor and rich, those who have and those who don't have. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, as rich as you can be, he's God, the Son, God in the flesh did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, that's a a way of saying that Jesus is God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is Paul saying in Philippians 2? He's saying that Jesus is God in the flesh and he humbled himself. He became a man. Listen to this. This is the heart of the gospel. God became a man, God the Son, and allowed His sinful creation to crucify Him on the cross to bear the penalty for their sins so that God the Father would judge God the Son on the cross. And Jesus, being infinitely holy and fully God, but fully man, bears the Father's wrath on the cross and then rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. So Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection is the ultimate example of humility. And Paul James is saying find yourself in that rich person. And Jesus is the ultimate example of exaltation and glory. And James is saying to the poor person find yourself in that and not in not in anything here in this earth. The good news of the gospel answers the restlessness no matter where we are on the spectrum of the human heart. And the Bible continually points us beyond this life to trust in Christ. That's a continual theme of James, to be, to be ready for the next life, this life. In fact, all of this life is a kind of test to be ready for the next. And friends, let's just admit that, that's, that's a hard thing to remember on a daily basis. I think that's why God gives us the church. That's why he gives us each other. That's why we have to remind ourselves. That's why we have... Have you ever noticed? Um, let me just let you in on a little secret. When we gather together, Christians repeat themselves a lot. We say basically the same things every week. Have you guys noticed that? Have you figured that out? It's like, oh, life's hard. Jesus is the answer. When this is tough, God, God helps us with this. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. My heart wanders, I'm prone to wander. Jesus helps us. That's basically what we talk about every Sunday. Have you noticed that? It's because that's what we need. That's what our hearts need. And the Bible continuously points us beyond this life to the next. Listen to this, this text in First in Corinthians chapter seven, that I think points directly at this. Now let me explain before I read First Corinthians chapter seven, verses 25. To thirty-one, and this, this will, will conclude our time together in the word. Let me give you a little context. Paul's giving instruction to the church, and in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in particular, he's concerned with those that are married and those that are unmarried and the restlessness of their heart, the challenges of being single, the challenges of being married. And he's wanting to point, regardless of where we are in life, in this particular instance, in whether we're married or single he's wanting to point us beyond as important as those relationships are he's not diminishing them but in context he's wanting the church in corinth the believers in corinth to do exactly what i think james is pointing us here to in james chapter 1 to not have our hearts entangled and ensnared and dominated by the affairs of this world. Now, here's something about the Christian life that we need to understand before we can understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, is that the Christian life is a kind of mixture between living in this world and not of this world. Jesus saves us and he leaves us to to give all that we have to glorifying him, but for our hearts to continually be longing for the world that is to come. So there's this kind of dual citizenship that marks the Christian life. We're here. We're giving our heart to his mission here, but we're longing for that day to come. That's a kind of strange paradox of the Christian life. And that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7, which I think is exactly what James is commending us to in verses 9 through 11. But let me read Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. He says in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed or single women that are betrothed to be married, I have no command from the Lord, but I, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So the Corinthians apparently were maybe going through a, a trial at that time, and he's just saying, look, look, don't, don't let that affect you. Just hunker down and, 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 and serve the Lord. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now listen to what he says in verse 29. He's using that situation, and he's actually then pointing to a deeper, a deeper issue, a deeper sort of admonition, which is in line with what I think James says in James 1. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, meaning that our time on earth, either Jesus is coming back or you're going to die pretty soon. And that's true for us today as well. The appointed time has come, has grown very short. From now on, listen to this. Let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul saying there? Now, if that's all that Paul told us about how to comport ourselves in this world, or if that's all that the Bible had to say about how we are to act in this present life that we're living, then we might conclude from this that the Bible is calling us to a kind of monasticism, to just go off into the desert and just find ourselves a little cave and to just wait until Jesus comes back or we die. But we know that's not what Paul is saying here because there is a a, a plethora, a a mountain of other verses that that commend us. In fact, Paul himself commends us, especially in marriage, to live in a way where we give ourselves to one another. So he's not saying, don't take from this, verse 29, that that we are to to not care about our, our marital spouse. Or that we're to just quit our jobs and and not care about goods. Or that if something bad happens, we're not to mourn. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's commending this paradox, this dual citizenship that James is calling us to. That have your heart so set on eternity that you're not bound, you're not bowing down. That the world's not pushing your head into yourself, but you're continually pushing your chin up to remember who you are, and where you're going. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what James is saying to us. But friends, this is a battle, because the world pushes on the back of our head, and the scriptures push on our chin to lift us up. And where does it end? Well, verse 12, the next verse in our text, back in James one, what's, how does James conclude this? James one, verse 12, he said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, whatever it may be riches, whether you have or have not. For when he has stood the test, when he's fought this search for significance, when he's fought the pressures of this life, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, the Bible, James, Paul, all of the Bible writers, Jesus, Jesus, are trying to get us ready for that day, not merely for this day. Live this day in a way that you keep your heart free so that you're ready for that day. And I don't know how to do that other than to remind myself of it continually, to repent of my sin, to live in community with other brothers and sisters, and to acknowledge that we all fight this, so let's live together in this way that James calls us to live. Let me pray. Father, we, we acknowledge that the world pushes on us. We acknowledge that we are, are kind of like that proverbial frog in the, in the pot of hot water that is so acclimated to the rising temperature that we don't even have the smarts to jump out of the pan. We We just let it cook us. Lord, would you lift our eyes to see how we are so prone to desire the things of this world, to find our significance outside of Christ. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would make Particular application to each of us in this room to the believers in Jesus that you would show us where we are prone to find our significance in the things of this world where we are prone to bow down to false gods to worship false idols and that you would lift our eyes that you would on this Sunday morning on this Lord's Day in a new way, lift up our eyes and renew our hope in Christ for the, for the brother in lowly circumstances, for the brother in high circumstances. Lord, may we look beyond those things. May we look to Christ afresh. And for my friend in this room that has, has come this morning that doesn't know Jesus, and maybe they find themselves a bit like that man in Luke chapter 12 who just wants something from, Jesus, what can you do for me? Divide mine here. Give me some answers on how to to do better in this life. May your Holy Spirit lift that person's eyes from beyond just some temporal need for self-improvement or gain to what their true issue is, that they will stand before you someday, and they will have to give an account of whether or not they worshiped you or this world. Lord, only you can give them a new heart that will enable them to worship this world. Only you can take their dead heart and give them a new heart so that they might trust in Jesus. Only you can show them their real need. Lord, would you do that this morning for my friend that has come, that just wants something from you for these 80 years? Would you show them that their greatest need is to be made right with a holy God and their only hope for that? is to trust in your son Jesus who was rich in the most immeasurable way and made himself poor for us so that all who trust in him may be immeasurably rich in grace forever and ever and ever. Do this, I pray. Search our hearts as we worship now, as we respond to you in song and repentance and confessions of faith, even as we sing Lord, renew our hearts. Lift up our eyes from this world because it is passing away. Lord, I pray that you do this for our good and for our joy. In Jesus' name.